Okay, so I'm going to start with the knowledge of the holy, and I'll open with prayer. Lord, thank you for the grace that you give us every single day. You know, the magnificence of your being. And Lord, that it would seep through our, change us completely. As Calvin said, you know, he wanted the word of God seeping out of him. In every single action, every word that he wrote, he wanted your word so saturated in him, it couldn't help but come out. Lord, we pray that same thing. You know, let it be in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Okay, knowledge of the holy is where we're going to start. Uh, we are talking about the, you know, this week what we talked about is the, the, the trauma of holiness. Let's see the phrase. The trauma of holiness. Your reading in scroll took you through several biblical positions of people that were forced to face the holiness of Christ and their reaction to it. So we're going to get there. I'm going to start with a more metaphysical <laughs> approach, which is the way that Tozer approaches this concept of how holiness affects mankind, about how God's holiness, the perfection of it, the transcendence of it, the incomprehensibility of it, how that affects man. That's everything that your reading was about. Um, I'm going to add another word. The incomparability. Uh, how Jesus couldn't be compared to anything man ever saw out of his own experience, out of the feature of man, and it scared these religious leaders literally to their bones. So, let's look at this. And Tozer, uh, Chuck and uh, Pam advised me that we course record and people are actually listening to the recording so I need to better do a better job of actually saying where we are in the books all right so in the knowledge of the holy we are on page 26 and if you have it uh, and this is talking about the self-existence of God so in chapter 5 uh, in the knowledge of the holy and the self-existence of God. And um, do I have to give the paragraph number too? One, I'm going to start. One, two, three, four, five, six. I am now in the seventh paragraph. Okay, there. That's as defined as it's going to be. Here's what Tozer has to say about the self-existence of God and the way that affects man. All men. All right? Philosophy and science have not always been friendly toward the idea of God, the reason being that they are dedicated to the, to the task, man is dedicated to the task of accounting for things, and are impatient with anything that refuses to give an account for itself. Now, are we talking about Jesus? Aren't we? He refused to give an account for himself, and in fact, the Bible itself starts with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he gives zero explanation of himself. So the very presupposition you take into the scripture on the revelation, self-revelation of God is that he's not going to give an accounting for himself or his actions. Jesus carried that out as well. So, this is Tozer reflecting on that. That's philosophy and science have never been friendly toward it. Because Jesus, the Lord Himself, refused to give an account. 
the philosopher, scientist, will admit there's much they do not know, but this is quite another thing from admitting that there is something that they can never know, which indeed they have no technique for discovering in truth. How do you reason yourself towards God? Um, to admit that there is one, capital, I mean, capital O, there is one who lives beyond us, who exists outside of all of our categories, who will not be dismissed with a name, who will not appear before the bar of our own reason, nor submit to our curious inquiries. This requires a great deal of humility, more than most of us possess. <clears throat> so that we face by thinking God down to our level. Man's reaction is to take God down to man's level. Or at least down to where he can manage him. <laughs> Yet how God eludes us, for he is everywhere while he is nowhere. For where has to do with matter and space, and God is independent of both. He's unaffected by time or motion, is wholly self-dependent, owes nothing to the world his hands have made. This is an impossible God. I said last week, leading the worship, we have a God problem. God problem. Right? Because we owe everything. And the reading that I used last week was, all of, take all of your temporal issues. Take all of your hurts and your pains and your money and your politics and take it all. Okay? You leave this world, you still got a God problem. Sin has many manifestations. I am now, I don't know, still in the self-existence of God. For those of you listening at home, sin has many manifestations, but its essence is one. A moral being created to worship before the throne of God only. This moral being sits on the throne of his own making and from this elevated position declares, I am. That is sin and is concentrated essence because it is natural that it appears, it is natural to man, that this kind of infatuation appears to be good. only when in the gospel the soul is brought before the face of the most holy one without the protection of the shield of ignorance now catch that when you can't claim ignorance that that particular time the frightful moral incongruity is brought home to your conscience go back to your conversion that's what I'm trying to drag you back. I'm trying to drag you backwards, not forward. Go backwards to your conversion. That frightful conversion that you might, that time that you had to face squarely the fact of who you were and who God was. In some limited capacity. In the language of evangelism, the man who is thus confronted by the fiery presence of Almighty God is said to be brought under conviction. Christ referred to this when he said of the Spirit, whom he would send to the world. And when the Spirit comes, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and justice. All right, I'm going to stop there. That is talking about the self-existence of God in its incomprehensibility to us. Okay? 
I mean, when Moses asked, Sproul made this point, when Moses said, what is your name? I want to confine you to a name to my own understanding. God's answer of the, for his first declaration of his personal name is, I am that I am. I exist totally of my own doing. And you can't possibly understand that, Moses. Okay, so that's the metaphysical side of the trauma of holiness, and you're going to have to think about that, you know, because God is incomparable to us. You can't take Him. Yes? Um, Jerry, just a thought about the shield of ignorance. Okay. And um, without the shield of ignorance, when God opens your eyes, we get the message from the Scripture, to whom much is given, much is expected. Yeah. So there's no way to hide from it. And so, in that sense, we're all kind of like Isaiah, although we have not been confronted with God the way that he has. We will one day, (laughs) and that part is kind of scary. There's your problem with God. Okay, So your shield of religion is going to do you no good. But I've been a good guy. I've given to the church. I've done good deeds. Got a God problem. And I, I mean that in a good sense. I had a lady tell me, we were uh, just chatting, and I just said, how are you enjoying? She left our class, went to a different class. And she said, look, I couldn't take the guilt every single week. I know. I said, guilt? And I said, well, you know, that's kind of true. Yeah. I mean, because I... Chris understands guilt. I mean, he's an Italian just like me. I mean, we steeped in guilt. But I don't know how you approach the self-existence of God in this particular case without the sense of your unworthiness in Him. I, I mean, I'm, the ostrich approach. Say, I'm okay. <laughs> Jerry, you know, when you said it's a good thing, first thing that came into my mind, and I don't know if this is where you were going to go, but it's a good thing in that God has not made it complicated to undo that problem. There's one way and one thing you have to do, yeah. and put your faith in Jesus Christ. God it's not like he yeah. said, you've got to figure out how to fix this God problem you have. Yeah. We all have it, and he said, it's easy. Everybody's Trust God. Trust in Christ. Yeah. And the problem but how easy we explain it away. Right. And typically, the typical response of explaining it away is, I'm doing more things right than I'm doing wrong. That's common. Really very common. How much do I have to do? And it's a lie on top of it. Because we can't do anything. Okay, so we have the metaphysical side of this where God is incomprehensible and transcendent. Awesome in his being, so far beyond us, that it's impossible to understand him through our own reason except through what he has revealed to us and how that affects our reason. I'm not saying reason doesn't have anything to do with it. It certainly does. All right, now, let me me go to the practical side because then we're going to go to the scripture that talks about the guys that should have known Jesus. This is Sproul's point. The guys that should have known him well and been comfortable in his presence and they weren't. Okay, so let's let's take a look at this. Here, 
Uh, and this is a terrific book. This is a commentary on the Gospel of Matthew. Um, and Dr. Jacobs. Uh, so what is the, what's the name of the book? <laughs> Matthew Henry. Yeah. Oh, the Gospel of Matthew. Okay. Matthew. 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 Gospel of Matthew, and the author is R.T. France. R.T. France. So Dr. Jacobs used this, but there's, and I just want to make one point to you. And this is so I talk metaphysical. This is the physical side of what happened with Jesus and the element that he introduced himself to. Okay, so we're talking about the religious system, <coughs> Pharisees, okay? So what what happened to Jesus? Now, I made a mistake for years of thinking that Jesus spent a lot of time in Jerusalem. Just kind of thought he was in and out, maybe stayed there, maybe had a not not being sacrilegious, maybe had an apartment there, you know, but that was his place, and then he moved out and went and then came back. Alright, truth is, he was in Jerusalem two or three times, maybe. His home camp was Galilee. Right? Jesus was referred to as a Galilean. The apostles. Galilee. Alright, now. So I started tracking down with Dr. Jacob's help what it meant if you said somebody was a Galilean. Alright. And I'm not going to belabor this. Modern re readers of the New Testament often know little about the geopolitical world of first century Palestine. It is commonly assumed that the Jews were an undifferentiated community, that they were a harmonious community. So when you said Jews, you got one group, all looked at everything same way, all right? Undifferent, living amicably in the part of the world we now call the Holy Land. They were united in their resentment of the political imposition of Roman rule to which they all were equally subject. Okay? So again, this harmonious group. One of the most significant gains of recent New Testament studies have been the increasing recognition that this is a gross distortion of the historical and cultural reality that Jesus stepped into. In particular, it is now recognized that Galilee was in the first century, in the first century, as indeed it had been ever since the death of Solomon. So it's not wasn't a new kind of thing. A distinct province with a history, political status, and culture which set it decisively apart from Jerusalem. So when you said somebody was a Galilean, you were talking about a distinct person, distinct area, that was, within your own realm, your enemy. Now I'm bringing this up because we're going to talk about what else Jesus did to alienate himself. The situation in the time of Jesus may be drastically oversimplified as follows. Racial. This area was considered inferior to the pure Jews that were in Jerusalem. Okay? So, racially, they were dismissed. Geographically, Galilee was separated from Judea by Samaria. So, they were surrounded by pagans as far as the Jerusalem Jews were concerned. Okay? That's geographic. Politically, 
Galilee had been under separate administration from Judea almost since its history. And trying to unify with them had met with total failure because the Galileans refused to unify. Economically, Galilee was a rich area. They had their own province, they had their own fishing industries, etc. Jerusalem, landlocked, didn't have any of the economic prosperity that Galilee had. Therefore, they were hated for their prosperity. Culturally, Jerusalem, Judeans, despised their northern neighbor as country cousins. <laughs> their lack of Jewish sophistication being compounded by their greater openness to Greek influence. Linguistically, Galileans spoke a distinctive form of Aramaic. Okay, now, can you reflect on the Gospels that say, you're from Galilee. I know just the way you're talking. You're from Galilee. And religiously, in the Judean opinion, was that Galileans were lax in their observance because they dismissed the Pharisaical approach of Jerusalem. If, as I hope, this is not, this is France talking, this is not a complete caricature, it means that an even impeccably Jewish Galilean, he's talking about Jesus, an impeccable, without sin, Jewish Galilean in first century Jerusalem was not among his own people. So he came to his own and his own did here you are. That's the situation. Chuck? I was just going to say the Bible deals with this very in one very simple sentence. Does. What good comes out of Nazareth? There you are. Okay? That was exactly the accusation that was made. So, this whole thing, uh, uh, let me just finish this. The uh, So, Jesus is coming into this arena of Jerusalem, and not often, but but some, preaching outside of Jerusalem most of the time, claiming himself to be Messiah. Right? Claim for him to be Messiah. So the obstacles facing Jesus of Nazareth, Galilee, okay, were just insurmountable as in terms of him being seen as even a credible option for Messiah. So, let it be said, you didn't get all that from Jacob. You got that. (laughs) (laughs) Terrible. uh, You know, terrible the way I viewed that for decades. And it was only until Dr. Jacob said, man, that's really not the case. And then, um, so anyway. So the whole issue of Jesus being accepted by Jews, and in particular Pharisees, that set them up to be the holy ones of the Jewish faith, was almost an insurmountable. Okay? Now, so, let me move on to what Jesus did to fan flint. <laughs> and uh, Sproul, Dr. Sproul wrote about this. I'm going to take you to the scripture where exactly, exactly where he came from. All right, now. Now, this is Jesus dealing with this group of people, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They're two separated but unified in terms of their Jewishness. 
self-proclaimed holy ones of Israel. Right? Okay, we got that? Now this is, we're still talking about the trauma of holiness. Alright, now this is, and I'm in Matthew 23 at this point. And this is the same place that Sproul went this week, so this should sound familiar to you. I'm just trying to put this into context. Now typically, if you were going to run for political office, you were going to curry the favor of the major voting block in the capital city, and Jesus should have been talking nice to the Pharisees. This is the trauma of holiness. We're talking about man's reaction to God. Now, I'm going to capsulize this by saying this. The Gospel of Luke makes a very clear statement. Jesus talking to Pilate at his trial, and I'm paraphrasing a bit, but he says to Pilate basically, just to be clear, Pilate, Except that you have been given this hour of darkness, you have no authority over me. Except that you be given this hour of darkness, you have no authority over me to do any of this that you're going to do. So, 23, Matthew 23. Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees had seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and then do not do them. Okay? You would call that a hypocrite. Hypocrite. Yeah. Okay. And they tie up heavy loads and lay them on men's shoulders, and they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. That's sort of the phrasing. Wouldn't lift a finger at help. But they all do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries, lengthen the tassels of their garments. They love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues, respectful greetings in the marketplaces, and being called by men rabbi. Don't be called rabbi. There is one that is your teacher, and you are all brothers. And don't say anyone on earth who is your father, for one is your father who is in heaven. Do not be, do not uh, be called. Leaders, for one is your leader, that is Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled. Whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. Now, this starts the seven woes of Jesus. Now, you've got to put Jesus in context of being the last prophet of Israel. Okay? The prophet of Israel. Last one. Right? Now, the seven woes reflect on Isaiah. You remember his seven woes. Okay? Where he, in his, in Isaiah 6, where in 5, where he went, you know, he's talking, woe to Israel, woe to Israel, woe to Israel. He sees the Lord and Isaiah says, woe is me. Remember, you remember all that. Okay? Here's Jesus delivering his seven woes. Of course, with the obvious exception, he cannot say woe is me. Okay, so here's the 13 first of woes. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut off the kingdom of heaven from men, and you don't enter yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering or trying to enter to go in. I'm going to skip to 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! 
You travel about on sea and land to make one proselyte. When he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourself. He's talking to the religious holy ones of Israel and he's there claiming to be, being claimed for him to be the Messiah and he is really not speaking nice, is he? Woe to you blind guides who say whoever swears by the temple, that's nothing. Whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he is obligated. You fools and blind men. Which is more important? The gold or the temple that sanctified the gold? This is holiness bearing down on these guys in Israel. We're going to get to where what happens in John. Okay, I'm setting the stage trying to anyway. 19. You blind men. 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Hypocrites. It's a common theme. You tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law which are justice and mercy and faithfulness. These are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. Here I am heaping guilt again. I can't help it. You blind guides, you screen out a gnat and you swallow a camel. Love that one. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the dish, and you'll be, and the outside will be clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs on the outside, which appear beautiful. Inside you are full of dead man's bones and all uncleanness. He's talking to the holy of Israel. <clears throat> Even so, you outwardly appear righteous to men. Inwardly, you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. <coughs> Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, who build the tombs of the prophets, adorn the monuments of the righteous, and say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. 33. You serpents. <laughs> you serpents. You brood of vipers. How shall you escape the sentence of hell? All right. I'm going to stop there. All right. You getting the gist of this? So the holiness of God constrains Jesus to speak the truth to those, that group, who declared themselves to be the holiest ones in Israel. And he doesn't say one nice thing. To That's real clear how Jesus views tolerance. Uh, it's real clear how he views a lot of things, isn't it? I mean, okay. So now, go to John. And this always, um, it's always amazed me. Um, I get amazed a lot uh, in reading the scripture, particularly when I start to put some of the lines together. But look what happens here in, um, let's see, I'm in John 5. I'm doing a lot out of the scripture today, and I need to scurry along. This is important. John 5, 36 through 47. Jesus starts to make a distinct comparison, excuse me, 
a distinct contrast between himself and the religious leadership. Okay? So, in 30, let's see, I'm going to read that. Um, 26, for just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave the Son to have life in himself. He gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Don't marvel at this. An hour is coming in which all who are in the tomb shall hear his voice. Now you want to hang on to that. Okay? You want to hang on to that. And shall come forth I can do nothing, 30, I can do nothing on my own initiative. If I alone, if I alone bear witness of myself, my testimony is not true. Now you want to hang on to that as well, because this starts Jesus talking about who witnesses of his divinity. Who is it that testifies of his own divinity? So, so if I testify of myself. Well, not necessarily. You could dismiss me. Okay, here comes the but. 32. There's another who bears witness to me. I know the testimony which he bears of me is true. Alright, you have sent. You have sent to John. He has borne witness to the truth. 36. The witness which I have is greater than that of John. For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me, and the Father who sent me, he has borne witness of me, uh oh, you. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor see his form. You. Do not have his word abiding in you. You do not believe him who he sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is these that bear witness of me. You're unwilling to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from men, but I know you. You don't have the love of God in yourselves. Now, again, consider the group he's talking to. I have come in my Father's name. You do not receive me. If another came in his own name, you would receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from another and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? Do not think I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accused you is Moses in whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how... Will you believe my words? Okay, now to bring this in the capsule, Jesus brings up seven witnesses for himself. God the Father, John the Baptist, his works, the scripture, Moses, and 856, he uses Abraham, and he also uses his signs. Okay, he's saying, these testify of my divinity. These testify of my divinity. All right, now let me flip to... <clears throat> what? Come on, Chris. 11. John 11. 11. Now, there it is. It had slipped out. Okay. All right, here we go. Now, you're holding on to, you're holding on to, there is me, there is you, there is nothing like about us. 
I am the prophet, the seven witnesses that I gave you, and here's the last one that is one of the signs, and I want you to see the trauma of holiness in the reaction of the Pharisees who he has just badgered. This, I mean, this is awful. But you're looking at the trauma of holiness. So, we're now to the point where Jesus wept, uh, Jesus weeps. Okay, that's 35. John 11, 35. Jesus wept. Jews were saying, Behold how he loved him. Some of them said, Could not this man have opened the eyes of him who was blind, kept this man from dying? Jesus therefore, again being deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lying against it. Jesus said, Remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the sea, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. That's significant because the Jews believed that the Spirit hovered over the dead body for three days. Okay, That the Spirit could re-enter the body, and so the definitive proof that Lazarus was dead dead was it was four days. Okay? Four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you, if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you always hear me, and I know, knew, that you hear me always. But because of the people standing around, I said it, that they may believe that you did send me. And when he had said these things, he cried out in a loud, loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. I want you to hear that and let there be light. Nothing to life. For he who had died forth, found hand and foot with wrappings, his face was wrapped with cloth, Jesus said to him, Unbind him and let him go. Many therefore the Jews, alright, here's where I'm going. All that to say this. The trauma of holiness. Many therefore the Jews who had come to Mary, beheld what he had done, they believed in him, which would have been the appropriate response. Right? Oh my God! But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Therefore the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what are we doing? This man is performing many signs. Yes. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. Yes. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. There you go. There's the truth. But a certain one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to him, this again amazes me, you know nothing at all, nor do you take into account. It's expedient for you that one should die for the people that the, so that the whole nation should not be. Truth coming out of a pagan. Now, this, he did not say in his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied Jesus was going to die for the nation, not for the nation only, but that he might also gather to himself into one, the children of God who scattered abroad. So, 53. Here's the culmination of all this, the trauma of holiness. From that day on, they planned together to kill him. Now tell me, if you are of sound reason, how you come to that conclusion after everything you have just seen and witnessed. Mm -hmm. By killing even bring some back to life. Their hearts are just it so certainly worked. 
didn't it? I mean, it worked according to the plan of God. My point to you is, this is the trauma of sinful man facing a holy God. And I'm including us in that. I mean, how do you escape the fact, and here's the word again right now, the guilt of who you are, your contrariness to God, just by nature. And your need of Christ. And your need. Thank you. <laughs> your need of Jesus. Okay, even those of us that are working at our holiness, that are conscious of the separation between us and God, okay, despite that. Okay, I'll put it to you this way. I got up last Sunday to leave worship. I thought I was going to burst into tears. No joke. Got up there. I was looking at you. I was looking at the liturgy, and I said, I should not be here. I'm not the guy to be doing this. You need somebody else besides me to do this. I was overcome by the responsibility of leading worship. But he made it look easy. I mean, you know, really, on one side, it's not that big a deal, you know? As long as you can breathe. We pray for you. I hope you did. Yeah, because I was up there and I told Dr. Jacobs, he said, well, how did it go? And I said, I thought I was going to cry. I said, that would not have been good. He said, that would not have been good. <laughs> actually, I didn't know until I saw the bulletin. Actually, I thought you were going to um, preach the one. Um, <laughs> Instead of... <laughs> okay. So, it, it tried to squeeze all that. Matthew, a piece of Luke, John, the raising of Lazarus, which was his greatest sign in all of John, okay, which was the declaration of Jesus as the Messiah, so that you would believe, okay, his greatest sign, and you bring it to the end, and the religious elite of Jerusalem that were opposed to anything that came out of Galilee, from that point on, they were trying to kill him. And, and this is Jesus, what happened. Jesus also called the Pharisees blind gods. Yep. They were blind. Absolutely yep. blind to the truth. Absolutely blind to the truth. And Jesus called them that. <coughs> yeah. yeah. It's also, don't confuse me with facts. I've made up my mind already. I already made up my mind about this. Yes. Which at a certain point in your life can be a good thing. You know, I made that decision 20 years ago. It was probably right. I'm not changing now. Okay, so I'm now to uh, I'm now to a scroll. And again, you know, I do this on really on the assumption and on the hope that you've read the lesson, have meditated on it, thought about it, so that I have the freedom to move outside the lesson. Okay, so that we get both in. But Mark 4, uh, 4 is uh, the trauma of holiness as it affects the apostles, the people that really knew Jesus best and at this point had, had we can, best we can tell, conversion experiences that were totally committed to him. Okay? So this was his inner circle as much as it was. And what do they do in the midst of this storm? You know, their reaction to the midst of the storm was, oh, thank God the waves calmed. Or, yeah. You know, their reaction was, who is this? 
Who is this? They were afraid of the Yeah. Shayla, we were raised in religion all our lives, weren't we? Yeah. You got confronted to Christ and you said, Who is this? This person that I have created in all my years of religiosity confronted with Jesus. Who is this? That's what the apostles did. Who is this? He defies the invented religion that we have made. I'm on page 51. Trauma of holiness in the holiness of God. Sproul says, what is significant about this scriptural story is the disciples' fear increased after the threat of the storm was removed. Crisis had passed. Storm had made them afraid. Had made them afraid. Jesus' action to still the tempest made them more afraid. Wouldn't you? In the power of Christ, they met something more frightening than they had ever met in nature. See, the, the trauma of holiness, of getting a glimpse of this, the transcendence, the incomprehensibility of God that he refuses, will not concede to our demands. <coughs> what? Uh, unholy demands, I should say. He answers prayer. He is kind and compassionate to us. Don't lose that. Okay? We're talking about he cannot be pigeonholed. More frightening than anything they met in nature, they were in the presence of the holy. We wonder what Freud would have said about that. Why would the disciples invent a God whose holiness was more terrifying than the forces of nature that provoked them to invent a God in the first place? Okay, isn't that what people claim about you? Well, that's fine. That's probably a good crutch for you. Yeah. What, uh, 52, what manner of man is this? They were asking a question of kind. They were looking for a category to put Jesus in. Bottom of the paragraph. He was in a class by himself, absolutely. You see Christ that way. You know, are you going to dance with Jesus in heaven? Or as Dr. Jacob says, are you going to fall on your face? And that's the difference in how you view holiness of God. I've still got two minutes. (laughs) Stop giving me this. (laughs) Okay, so uh, I'm now on page 54 in the second paragraph. Okay, now again, this is this is right out of the lesson. You read it. I'm sure you meditated on it. Okay? But Jesus, again, offering gently, Simon, why don't you go out and let down the nets on the right side? Doesn't require a lot of imagination to read between the lines and catch Peter or Simon's seething sarcasm. Master, look, we've worked hard all night. We are fishermen. You are a carpenter. You know nothing about our business. Don't tell me to go out and drop the nets on the right side. We've worked hard all night and we've caught nothing. But because you say so, I'll let down the nets. All right. 
I'll take the garbage out. Does it sound like that? Yeah. <laughs> it's fourth and one on the two-yard line. Do I have to do it now? Real respect for the wisdom of Jesus in this circumstance would have had Simon simply saying, I will do what you ask. Mm -hmm. Right? When the sane, holy man said, yes, Lord. Instead, he found it necessary to register his frustration. It is as if he had said, look, Jesus, you're a marvelous teacher. Your words keep us all spellbound. In matters of religion, you confound us all. But please, give us a little credit here. We are professionals. We know the fishing business. We've been out there all night fishing. And zero. The fish just aren't running. Let's go home, go to bed, try it again later. But if you insist, in order to humor you, then, of course, we'll let down the nets. I can see Peter exchanging a knowing glance with Andrew and muttering complaints under his breath as he hoisted the nets that he had just cleaned. Okay? And, you know, there's... I read about this, you know, barnacles, things get on the nets, and you have to clean them after they use, although they, they not. Okay? Just clean the nets. Threw them overboard. He must have been thinking to himself, these blasted teachers, I mean, they're all the same. They think they know everything because they read it in a book. Okay, so you know how it turned out. And how did Peter react? I'm on 55. How did Peter react to the trauma of holiness he saw from the Lord Jesus that overcame all of his understanding, all of his humor understanding? This is Luke 5.8. Get away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. That's the correct response to the trauma of holiness. Well, it sure beats I want to kill you. Yeah, doing better than Pharisees. Please go away from me, Lord. I can't stand it. I am a sinful man. Okay, I've got to stop. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the fact that it brings us to our knees. As much as you have blessed us with material success, it is nothing compared to the problem we have to face you and all of your holiness. And Lord, we do see, we do see the terrible lacking we have, our contrariness. We pray, according to your grace, apply to us. We pray that we would be holy according in your sight. In the name of Jesus, amen.